Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Shirley Turner was born in 1961 in Kansas in the U.S. At a young age, her family moved to Newfoundland in Canada, and her four siblings lived in Portland Creek and Daniels Harbor. Shirley's parents divorced when she was seven. Times were tough. She saved up her pennies to buy candy, and sometimes her family relied on welfare. Shirley was extremely smart and had ambitions to become a doctor. By 21, she was married and had two children. When that marriage ended, Shirley married for a second time and had a third child. She became a teacher, but had never forgotten her dream of being a doctor. She put another marriage behind her and struck out on her own. Her two older children went to live with their grandparents, and her youngest stayed with her ex-husband. Shirley began dating a man younger than her. The Telegraph described how when the relationship wasn't working for him, he tried to break it off. But Shirley wouldn't hear of it. He moved to Labrador. She followed him. Then he moved to Philadelphia, and she followed him. Shirley managed to find out where he lived. She started to write a suicide note, bought some roses, and went to his apartment building. She downed over-the-counter sleeping pills, then proceeded to drag herself up the stairs, scraping her wrists along the way. When he arrived home, he discovered Shirley, passed out and bloody on his doorstep. She survived, spending one night in the hospital. He was finally free of her. Shirley achieved her dream of becoming a doctor, but wasn't well-liked. She was confrontational, didn't take criticism well, and didn't get along with her co-workers. In fact, they referred to her as the witch. Andrew Bagby also grew up with dreams of becoming a doctor. His mother Kate was a nurse and his father a software engineer. He was a big fan of basketball, had a sense of humor, and enjoyed watching TV comedies like Seinfeld and The Simpsons. He was a fan of Star Wars movies and bestowed the name Darth on his black cat. Andrew left Sunnyvale, California. In 1999, he was attending his last year of his medical degree at Memorial University 
in Newfoundland. Andrew was an all-around nice guy, someone who couldn't say no. A trait that some would say attracted those that were needy and insecure. And to fit that bill, Shirley walked into his life. Although she was 38 and 12 years older than him, the couple hit it off. All of a sudden, she was always around, attending functions with Andrew and his friends. And although she was extremely bright, she had a way of putting people off. She told jokes in poor taste, and his friends weren't fond of her. The National Post described how for Shirley and Andrew's first Valentine's Day together, the couple shared a romantic dinner in St. John's. Andrew was a romantic type and bought candles and wine. For a gift, he gave Shirley a candle holder known as a circle of friends. It's said that when you give someone this candle holder, that your friendship is bonded together forever. After graduation, Andrew started a surgical residency in Syracuse, New York. Shirley followed him to the U.S. and found a job working in Council Bluffs, Iowa, but it was 1,100 miles away. The couple maintained the long-distance relationship for a while, but as time went on, Andrew wasn't happy and wanted to end it. In July 2001, Andrew attended a wedding without Shirley, but she wouldn't let him forget about her and phoned his cell phone over 30 times. Andrew discovered that surgery wasn't where his passion lied. He wanted to be a family physician and make a difference in people's lives. So he moved to Latrobe, Pennsylvania and began working at the local hospital. Andrew moved on to a new relationship, and when Shirley got wind of this, she started phoning his new girlfriend, who mentioned it to Andrew, and he said he would take care of it. Meanwhile, Shirley bought a 22 caliber semi-automatic handgun. Shirley had an ace up her sleeve, to get Andrew back. She would appeal to his empathy. She flew to Latrobe to tell him she'd had a miscarriage. But the news didn't change Andrew's mind. In fact, he doubled down on his decision. Andrew took Shirley to the airport. There, he officially broke up with her for the last time and put her on a plane back to Council Bluffs. Shirley was furious. How dare he? Andrew didn't decide when they would break up. She would make that decision. Shirley packed up her car and drove 16 hours straight back to Latrobe. Along the way, she made numerous phone calls including Andrew. At 5.30 a.m. on November 5th, she arrived on Andrew's doorstep. 
He had to get to work, but agreed to meet her that night. When he arrived at work, he confided in a co-worker who responded with, You know, when I break up with somebody and put them on a plane and send them 1,300 miles away, if they knock on my front door, I'm going out the back door and I'm calling the police. And he advised Andrew not to meet Shirley in private. But nice guy Andrew couldn't say no. After work, he drove 20 minutes to Keystone State Park, where they'd agreed to meet. At 6 p.m., he pulled in past the main gate and parked in the gravel parking lot next to Shirley's car and got out. So did Shirley. Shirley raised her arm. Hidden within her grip was a 22. She fired once, twice, then three more times. The bullets ripped through Andrew's chest, his head and face. Andrew fell face down on the gravel, dead at 28. Shirley hopped into her car and sped away. She had made her decision. Now, the relationship was over. On the long drive back to Council Bluff, Shirley again made numerous phone calls. Meanwhile, a friend of Andrew's was concerned when he didn't show up for a social event that evening, and by morning, his co-workers were worried when he didn't arrive for work. Just before 7 a.m., someone out for a stroll in the park spotted something unusual. A body covered in frost, dressed in scrubs with hospital identification. Nearby were five spent shell casings and one live round. Police phoned Kate and David to tell them their only child, Andrew, was dead. Through their investigation, police in Pennsylvania soon learned of Andrew's toxic relationship with Shirley and found her. She claimed that she was working in Iowa and admitted she owned a 22 handgun. But when police in Iowa showed up at her apartment that afternoon, she told them the gun was missing. The next day, she changed her story and said she'd given it to Andrew. Investigators discovered that Shirley had called in sick to work the day Andrew was murdered, and her phone records revealed that she'd lied as to where she was. Records show that she traveled from Iowa to Pennsylvania and while driving had made numerous phone calls to Andrew. The Trove Bulletin reported that police searched Shirley's apartment and discovered she was a fan of crime. Among her things, they found two books, one titled Dr. Death, the other Shot in the Heart. 
Police talked to Shirley's firearm instructor, who told them how her gun would misfeed and inject live rounds. The same type and brand found at the murder scene. Then he told them that Shirley said her gun had been stolen. Shirley felt the noose tightening around her and fled to Canada. She told investigators that she'd gone to care for her son, who'd been in a car accident. Police didn't buy her story and felt she'd fled to Canada to take advantage of their extradition agreement with the U.S., which often takes a death penalty off the table. Three weeks after Andrew's murder, the Pennsylvania State Police issued a warrant for Shirley's arrest. She was charged with first-degree murder. But extraditing someone to the U.S. isn't that simple. There's a process. First, the Canadian Federal Department of Justice in Ottawa needed to approve her arrest in Canada, which took a few weeks. The Gazette reported that after her arrest, she was released on a $75,000 bond. Conditions of her release included possessing no weapons, remaining in St. John's, Newfoundland, reporting weekly to authorities, and giving up both her U.S. and Canadian passports. In February 2002, Shirley made an announcement, a twist no one saw coming. She was pregnant with Andrew's child. Jobless since being fired after her arrest, she was receiving only $650 in social assistance each month. Shirley was back in the same situation she had spent her whole life escaping. Poor and destitute, she found herself shopping in thrift stores for maternity and baby clothes. In July, she gave birth to Zachary Andrew Turner. DNA tests confirmed that Zachary was indeed Andrew's son. Andrew's parents temporarily relocated from California to Newfoundland to be near him to ensure that he would have a good start in life. Shirley permitted them to have one visit a week under supervision in a family court. The couple never imagined themselves having to be told when they could see their grandson by the woman who had killed their son. But they were sure it was only a matter of time before Shirley would be extradited and they would raise her grandson. During a time of great grief, Zachary brought joy to his grandparents. He was a happy baby who smiled often. He had strawberry blonde hair and Andrew's button nose. In November, a Canadian judge ruled there was enough evidence to warrant a trial and ordered Shirley to be put in prison while she waited to be extradited. Kate and David took custody of Zachary. On court orders, every week they were forced to endure a 150-mile round trip to the prison in freezing cold and blowing snow so that Shirley could visit with him.
The couple loathed these visits, and it pained Kate, and surely would ask what Andrew's hair had been like as a child. And she even had the audacity to ask Kate if she would put a photograph of her and Zachary on their mantle. Kate politely replied, No. In January 2003, Canadian Justice Gail Welsh released Shirley on bail, stating that Dr. Turner's detention is not necessarily in the public interest, while the offense with which she is charged is a violent and serious one. It was not directed at the public at large. Shirley was released from prison and took custody of her son. Beside Zachary's crib, she hung the last photo taken of her and Andrew. At 42, Shirley held on to her dream of returning to work as a doctor. Six months later, a Canadian Minister of Justice ordered Shirley to be returned to the U.S. to face trial. Shirley waited for the inevitable, broke a $200,000 in debt from medical school and legal bills. She had a big decision to make about something more important than money. She wanted to do what was best and contemplated if she should put her 13-month-old son up for adoption. Almost two years after Andrew's murder, it was August 16, 2003, a warm Saturday afternoon when Kate and David joined Shirley and Zachary at the local pool. Afterwards, Kate and David drove them home. When they arrived, little Zachary was sound asleep. But Shirley insisted on waking him up to say goodbye. Zachary started to cry and held his arms out to Kate. Shirley grabbed him and told him, You can't always be with your grandparents. Shirley had made her decision. Sunday night, she fed Zachary sleeping pills. At 11.30 p.m., she borrowed her son's green mercury topaz and drove in the rain to Conception Bay. She parked and walked a mile in the dark to stand at the edge of the rocky shore. There, she used a sweater to tie Zachary to her chest. She looked down into the freezing black North Atlantic Ocean and jumped. The next morning, the abandoned topaz was found, and by evening, a couple out walking their dog spotted Shirley's body washed up on Manuel's beach. Police responded and discovered Zachary's body nearby. The medical examiner ruled it a murder-suicide. Zachary was cremated and half his ashes given to Andrew's parents. Shirley's family tucked the other half in her casket before she was buried in a remote fishing village on the west coast 
of Newfoundland. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Jennifer Pan. As a daughter of hardworking immigrants, Jennifer was expected to excel. When her grades began slipping, she forged straight A's. She hid her lies for seven years until she was caught. Then her parents paid the ultimate price. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murderin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects from Vaseline Studios and Quick Sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>